0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna
2: Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through
4: the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the
3: former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mullen. Sam Zell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment.
4: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
3: History was made this week with the death of Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain, the longest serving monarch in British history. Overshadowing, for a moment, economics and currencies and central banks, and yes, even wars. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers and Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain passed away this week at the age of 96, leaving behind a 70-year reign and a new king,
4: King Charles III. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned
3: most deeply in her passing. But even as the world took a moment to reflect on an era that has passed, it continued to contend with the current one, where war in Ukraine has led to an energy crisis in Europe, as President Putin insisted that he is not using oil and gas as a weapon, even as he shut down his Nord Stream pipeline indefinitely.
5: Nord Stream 1 is now practically shut down and everyone is saying Russia is using energy as a weapon. More nonsense. We deliver as much as our partners
3: need. And the ECB reacted to the inflation triggered by the energy crisis by raising rates at historic 75 basis points, with more to come. The governing council today decided to raise the three key ECB interest rates by 75 basis points. This major step
1: frontloads the transition from the prevailing highly accommodative level of policy rates towards levels that will ensure the timely return of inflation to our 2% medium term target.
3: While in the United Kingdom, just before news came of the Queen's death, the Prime Minister, she had installed only two days before, announced caps on household energy costs and promised to pull her economy through.
6: I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. I will
5: drive reform in my mission to get the United Kingdom working, building and growing.
3: In the United States, markets waited for the next Fed decision, now less than two weeks away with all indications that the FOMC will stay the course and keep raising rates until it's sure inflation is
6: under control. We're in this for as long as it takes to get inflation down. So far we've expeditiously raised the policy rate to the peak of the previous cycle, and the policy rate will need to rise further.
3: And when all was said and done, the markets had a good week, at least if you were long, with the S&P 500 up 3.65% in a shortened trading week, with much of the gain coming on Friday. While the Nasdaq tracked the S&P nicely, up over 4%, with the gain, once again, on Friday. And all this was despite a rise in bond yields, with the yield on the 10-year ending the week just over 3.3%, up about 12 basis points. Here to explain all this equity appetite, our Sarah Malik, Chief Investment Officer, Ed Duveen and Jim McDonald, Northern Trust Chief Investment Strategist. Welcome to both of you here to Wall Street Week. So let me start with you, Jim. What do we read into this market? Are happy days here again? I
4: mean, we did have a really nice gain this week. David, I think you could spend a couple hours looking through all the fundamental data and not find anything that really supported a big increase in risk appetite this week. So I think you really have to attribute it to the fact that we had a couple weeks of softness preceding this, and then sentiment is terrible, and then technically the market is making higher lows, so technically it looks okay here. But if you think about what's going to drive the market over the next 6 to 12 to 18 months, the growth outlook is deteriorating, Europe's likely in recession, China's clearly in recession, the US 50-50, we think, over the next 12 months. The Fed and the ECB are raising rates uh, resolutely. And the inflation picture, while improving, is probably overly discounted in the markets. A one-year break even on the tips is at 2%. So we think that the environment is probably not as robust as this week's market action might indicate. Well, I'm sorry, sir. When I hear 2%
3: uh, in a one-year break even, that sounds like maybe inflation's coming back down again.
6: I think that that number is coming back down. Inflation's moderating. We'll likely see a little bit more moderation when CPI comes out next week, but that slope is probably too aggressive. I think inflation will remain sticky. We have higher wages and higher shelter prices. Those likely stick around, and that's going to keep core inflation numbers probably much higher, and I wouldn't be be surprised to see that break even actually increase over time. The other thing we're watching for is the Fed. Before we decide if this rally is sustainable, we'd want to see more signs of a Fed pivot, and we're not seeing that. So we agree with Jim. This is probably not a sustainable recovery. Well,
3: what about the Fed pivot? Is it dead, effectively? I mean, it certainly sounds like Jay Powell recently has not been saying much that would be consistent with a pivot.
6: I don't think we're going to see a pivot in early 2023. What Jay Powell has been saying is that he's going to do what's necessary to fight inflation, even if that comes somewhat at the expense of the economy. And given that inflation likely has these sticky components to it, I think he continues to raise rates, likely 75 basis points at the September meeting, and then more moderate rate increases from there. If anything, you'll see a pause in 2023, But you won't see rate cuts until we hit a recession and we see that demand destruction.
4: Yeah, and David, we've seen in the last month a reduction in the cuts that the market has priced in. They were pricing in 50 basis points of cuts in 23. It's now come down to just 25 basis points. And what I'm most interested in keeping an eye on is the labor markets. I think the Fed can't stop raising rates because growth is hurt. They can't stop because the market is struggling. They need to see the unemployment rate increase to give them cover to be able to start slowing down the pace of increase
3: okay sarah malik and jim mcdonald will be staying with us as we get their thoughts on what the smart investor does with their portfolio given what we've just been talking about this is wall street week on bloomberg
0: today's show is sponsored by public.com that's where you can earn 5.1 apy with a high yield cash account while we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is we can say this
2: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at QuickBooks.com/slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
4: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Well, it wasn't pretty. There was unforgettable heroism among the victims and the rescuers. But the financial markets, even after what was supposed to have been a useful time out, staged a historically panicky retreat, mumbling legalistic rationalizations like fiduciary responsibility as an excuse for what rapidly descended into unchecked hysteria, that was Lewis Rookheiser, of course, describing the immediate
3: market reaction to the tragic events of 9-11. That was 21 years ago this coming weekend. A reaction delayed by the closing at the time of the New York Stock Exchange and heroic efforts to get it back up and running after just six days. So with us are Sarah Malik of Nuveen and Jim McDonald of Northern Trust. So I'm happy to say we do not have anything like the tragedy of 9-11 that we're confronting right now. At the same time, there's a fair amount of pressure on the markets, I think it's fair to say. In this environment, how does one construct a portfolio?
6: Well, it's not all doom and gloom when we think about portfolio construction. There are ways to build portfolios that are resilient to inflationary environments across asset classes. Now, the typical 60-40 equities fixed income portfolio has struggled this year. But within equities, there's companies that are more resilient, like dividend growers. These are companies like that continue to grow their dividends over time. Broadcom's a great example of that. In fixed income, an area that people may not be thinking about if we're approaching a recession is high yield. You can get returns of over 8% in high yield fixed income, so you're paid to wait until spreads tighten and the companies are higher quality than they used to be.
3: So Jim that's a lot to chew on but let's start with one of them which is credit and high yield. Where yeah. are you on that?
4: So we're very constructive on high yield. It's our largest tactical overweights with a yield to worst of eight and a half percent or so. Downside risk of about a third of the equity markets uh, in the high yield markets. You need to think about high yield as a risk asset so this is not something we're taking uh, investment grade bonds and putting it into high yields. It's much more of an equity substitute in this environment but that that kind of return looks really attractive here. Another aspect I would mention is geographic exposure within equities. So we have a slight overweight to the U.S. and underweights xU.S. and in emerging market equities, really reflecting the significant growth issues and inflation problems that are being realized overseas. That's another way to give clients some confidence that we're positioning for what we think is going to unfold over the next 12 months. And lastly, I would say the real asset side, we also very much support having some inflation exposure, whether it's in... Uh, global listed infrastructure which has that pricing power or on a long-term basis commodities where we think you can get in a basket of listed commodity producers a yield near six percent which is really attractive in this environment.
6: So we're actually more concerned about commodities excluding energy because we think that commodities are very exposed to demand destruction but energy is a different story where supply remains tight demand should remain strong and what we love about energy producers is that they're being very disciplined this cycle they're returning cash to shareholders rather than just working to just increase volume, good for those companies and to keep oil prices beneficial to them.
3: But Sarah, put together, if you will, the slight overweight to U.S., not much more than slight that Jim talked about, and what you just said about energy. Because given this energy situation, one might say it's more than a slight overweight to U.S. Where are you?
6: We are probably more constructive on the U.S. than the rest of the world. We think the U.S. will continue to be the, the safe haven trade because of the resilience of the economy versus the rest of the world. Europe could run into stagflationary issues with their ability Aggressive increases in interest rates while the economy suffers and the emerging markets you know, are challenged because of the continued lockdowns in China and some of the other areas that are having issues. So I think non-U.S. is going to be a struggle, especially with a strong dollar.
4: And so I would add to that, from a U.S. exposure standpoint, we also like the energy sector. And the other one that we like are technology stocks. They have really struggled this year, improved the valuations, mm. clearly a long-term growth leader globally. And so it's a bit of a balanced approach within a U.S. equity portfolio, liking both energy and technology stocks.
6: It's interesting. You know, technology stocks tend to struggle, though, when interest rates are increasing because they're considered long-duration stocks. An area, for example, semiconductors, which have even underperformed the technology benchmark. But I think- I think you can find value in some of these areas. This, this goes back to dividend growers. A Broadcom's a company that within the semiconductor space tends to be kind of offensive and defensive, more resilient business with their enterprise uh, demand and also with their software mix, and a nice dividend that's growing over time. Uh,
3: so, so as you're putting together your portfolio, do you take into account the possibility or even some say likelihood of recession or not? Because for example when you say high yield, high yield's a good thing, I get a little nervous if we're going into anything right. that's a real recession, right Jim?
4: So you have to have a view on on what the recession will be if it unfolds. We're at a 50-50 probability in the U.S., but we think it will be shallow. The banking system is in dramatically better uh, situation than it was during the global financial crisis, so credit creation won't really be hurt. Household balance sheets are not in bad shape, so it's much more likely to be a shallow cyclical recession, and high yield with a starting yield to worst of 8.5% gives you a very nice cushion in that environment.
6: I, I agree with that. I mean, we're looking for areas, given the environment out there, where are you getting the best bank for your buck. And so even though we do predict a recession, you're getting paid to wait in high yield with that kind of return. You can have that resilient income-producing portfolio and equities with dividend growers, and then look for those asset classes that actually can benefit from inflation, like within real assets.
3: How important is liquidity in all this? When you start talking about real estate, for example, farmland, things like that, that sounds like I'm giving up something on duration, right?
6: You're giving up something, you're giving up some liquidity, um, you're also dampening your volatility, that's why we recommend a balanced portfolio. You want to make sure that you have your publics and your privates within your portfolio so that you do have areas where you can get liquidity if you need it, but also the resilience and less volatile pieces of the private asset classes can be beneficial, especially in this year, which is unique, where the 60-40 typical equity and fixed income portfolios that people have have been highly correlated.
3: All fixed income obviously is not created equal. Where are you in investment grade?
4: So we're significantly underweight investment grade. We just don't think that the nominal yield uh, or the real yield opportunity looks particularly attractive. And our number one risk case around sticky inflation, investment grade bonds are not going to do well in that environment. So that's an underweight in our tactical portfolios. Do you agree, Sarah?
6: Generally, we would prefer high yield over investment grade for the same thing. You're getting greater returns, more bang for your buck from high yield.
3: And where are you on tech? Jim said he like tech might be a good idea, although, as you said, if the interest rates are going up, typically that hurts tech.
6: Yeah, I mean, generally, bigger picture, the macro environment is not good for long duration technology stocks. That's why you need to be selective. And we're, we're looking for what we said, kind of offensive and defensive tech together. The companies that either are more resilient because they have healthy growing dividends or they have pricing power so they can survive the environment, the trade of you know, pre- pandemic where all technology stocks kind of all did well. I think that's over.
4: I would just add that the market knows that interest rates are going up and have gone up and that has killed valuations within the technology sector. So we think that's what's set up the opportunity today. Tech stocks have discounted a great amount of the higher rates.
6: But it's interesting. If you look at 2023, markets are actually less, hawk, less hawkish than the Fed. So there's a mismatch there. In 2022, markets have now caught up to the Fed, same level of hawkishness. But 2023, markets are saying, you know what, we expect less less rate hikes than the Fed expects, and we'll see if that happens. Probably depends on if we hit that recession and inflation finally drops significantly.
3: Okay, this is really, as I say, a really terrific discussion. Thank you so very much. That's Sarah Malik of Nuveen, as well as Jim McDonald of Northern Trust. Coming up, it's an uncertain time for investors, full of risk without a lot of certain return. But Rick Reeder of BlackRock thinks that there's the potential for the patient investment to really do quite well. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
4: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
3: They say it's always darkest before the dawn and there's plenty of dark out there for investors right now with the stock market off
6: overall positioning has still been pretty depressed and sentiment reflects that
3: inflation still raging
6: inflation stickiness is not going away anytime soon
3: and the Fed intent on continuing to hike rates
5: was fairly obvious coming in the year that the Fed would tighten
3: but there may also be some early rays of light with commodity prices coming back down
1: if the Fed continues to Heighten, and we believe the dollar will turn back up and these commodities will continue to
3: fall. So the question is whether this is a false dawn or whether it's actually a good time for the patient investor to position for a rosier future. And to tell us which of those it is, we welcome back now Rick Reeder, BlackRock CIO for Global Fixed Income and also head of the Global Allocation Investment Team, which includes the BlackRock Strategic Income Opportunities Fund rated five stars and gold by Morningstar. I'm sure you don't want to brag about that, but I think we should brag uh, for you, Rick, there. So, be very kind. Rick, give us your sense of, of this market from your point of view. I mean, you're putting money to work all the time, both on fixed income and also in equities. What do you make of this market right now?
7: So, I mean, David, I mean, you, you think about it. We came in at the beginning of this week and said, well, you've got energy caps. You've got the turning off of Nord Stream. You've got China growth, China COVID, China Taiwan. You've got a series of issues. Uh, that are that are hard to get your arms around. By the way, the good sector of the US economy is softening. Uh, so there's a lot of challenges out there in the in the world. That being said, you know, if you take a step back and you think about as an investor, you know, with the Fed moving rates higher, all of a sudden you could buy short end interest rates at at levels we haven't seen in a really long time. I was thinking about it, a year or two ago, you know, you had to pay Less than one percent to fund companies, fifty basis points. So Amazon did it all twenty five basis points in three years. All of a sudden, you could buy you could buy short end assets at four, four and a half, five percent. Put some money to work, get some carry, and then tactically look at areas that are that are where there's opportunity. And listen, I mean, you can get really, really concerned about where the world is when you when you step back and think about U.S. economy we think is gonna have nominal GDP this year of 5%. Nominal GDP of five. You know, you've got a service sector that's doing well, you've got a healthcare sector that's doing well, you've got parts of the economy. So there's things to do. I mean, you know, while it is one of the most challenging, uncertain times, that we've seen in markets in a long time with central banks tightening. There's some things to do in the markets and there's some, there's some reason to, to look at some, uh, some opportunities out there.
3: So the difference, uh, as my math works, from a quarter of a percent to five percent is a pretty big difference. That sounds pretty good to get that kind of return. At the same time, it depends on what's going on in inflation, right? We've got CPI numbers coming out next week. If we've got headline inflation around eight and we've got core around five or six, that five percent doesn't look quite so good, does it?
7: it actually doesn't look good at all and if you assume that we're going to be running at those sort of levels for a period of time but you look at where the inflation markets are where the where real capital including ourselves are transacting and today we were we were locking in inflation in 2 years at under 2.2% for 2 years 5 years Five years are around 2.5%, 10 years are around 2.4. So if you say, gosh, I can buy one and two year high quality assets at four and a half to five, I'm protecting my inflation risk in the low twos boy i'm locking in real rates i'm financing companies, by the way not just companies commercial mortgages i'm financing companies with a real rate that's pretty attractive and you can actually people can talk about stickiness of inflation which is real shelter inflation's high wages are high but boy you can do some things in the market that can that can certainly hedge your uh, your inflation risk and and you carry quite well in the market today.
3: So if the inflation risk is not what some people fear it is, it's actually coming down, why is that? Is that because the Fed is tightening, it's tightening the, the money, or is it actually, is there something in the notion that the supply chain is loosening up some?
7: So I think it's two parts. One, I think the Fed deserves an awful lot of credit. Listen, I there was enough criticism to go around, myself included, that last year they waited too long QE. I think that's been well chronicled. This year, they cannot be any more clear. They cannot be uh, more more strident in inflation is is what they're doing, and they're not going to back off that. And you know, I think they're going to get the funds rate to four, three and three quarters to four, probably four, and then I think they're going to let long and variable lags of monetary policy do their thing. So they're pretty clear. So I think there's a credibility from the Fed that I think you you've got to uh, you've got to applaud in terms of what they're doing today. Second. Is as you said supply chain you see real real improvement in supply chains you see it in some of the ppi numbers you see freight costs coming down you see commodity costs coming down so there are some reasons to see come you to see that um that, gosh, some of this inflation you know by the way you also see an in inventory levels look at retailers or inventory levels are up quite a bit in fact there's not there's not places to put some things today so you'll see some price discounts um, there and, uh, and by the way, in semiconductors, it's not, it's not perfectly solved around supply chains. But you look at some of the semiconductor sh- uh, stocks these days. People are concerned about oversupply. That's not something we've talked about for a long time. So it's better. And there's some reason for optimism. But I think you have to start with a central bank. That is, there is no ambiguity, and they're quite clear in how they're communicating that.
3: Thank you so much. Always great to have you with us. It's Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Coming up, we're going to wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
2: making your money work as hard as you do that's how you business differently learn more about quickbooks money at quickbooks.com slash 5 apy banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
4: this is bloomberg wall street week with david weston from bloomberg radio
3: This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, welcome back. Uh, one of the big events of this week, besides the queen passing, was actually what's going on with currencies, with the U.S. dollar sitting record after record. At the same time, the euro is really falling off, and Boy, look at the yen. What is going on with the economies?
5: Look, the United States has a huge advantage. Uh, we've recognized it for a long time in terms of our lack of dependence on egregiously expensive foreign energy. And that is benefiting the relative strength of our economy. At the same time, we've mounted a stronger response macroeconomically to the pandemic. Our central bank is moving faster to do necessary tightening with respect to uh, the with respect to monetary policy, uh, given inflation and all those various factors, are making us uh, safe haven a mecca for capital and that's causing resources to flow into uh, the dollar. It's remarkable that people were saying that the dollar's day was passed uh, not very long ago, uh, given its current strength. And my guess is that there's room for this to continue. You know, the euro was uh, in the low 80s against the dollar uh, 20-some years ago, and in some ways the relative fundamentals of the United States compared to Europe are even stronger now than they were then.
3: So Larry, uh, there's talk actually about for the possibility of intervention in Japan to try to support the yen. Given what you just said, that it's larger macroeconomic factors, is it possible for Japan to actually intervene and actually shore up the yen?
5: I tend to be skeptical that intervention can have sustained impacts. Um, The capital markets are just so big even relative to the resources that uh, the authorities uh, have uh, that I would be surprised in today's world if interventions could have large sustained uh, impacts on maintaining uh, the value of the yen. I think the more fundamental questions uh, for the yen involve the level of Japanese interest rates, both in the short And over the longer term and the extent to which uh, the Japanese will at some point feel comfortable raising those interest rates, which is not a simple proposition given the magnitude of debts in Japan.
3: So we're seeing a different sort of intervention over in Europe, uh, both through with respect to the United Kingdom where the new prime minister Liz trust now is Im- trying to impose a cap on the cost of households. We also have the possibility of a price cap being agreed upon in Europe. Is that a reasonable infer- intervention? Is it likely to be effective at dealing with the runaway energy costs, particularly in Europe?
5: Look, uh, it's an extraordinarily difficult situation. and. It's a mistake to be too judgmental from uh, too far away. But when I saw the emerging plan, it reminded me of standard um, Latin American populist uh, approaches. Fix the price and commit to unlimited subsidy. And those policies often have not worked out well at all for uh, those who uh, implemented them. And so it seems a very dangerous course. Now, I think we ought to give the British authorities an opportunity to explain the rationale for their policy, to explain the financing mechanisms behind uh, their policies. But a policy of tax cutting avoiding taxation of windfall profits, subsidizing consumers for uh, low-priced energy in the face of a nearly unlimited potential liability uh, seems to me to at least raise very serious and severe arithmetic uh, questions. And I think people who are thinking about the pound are uh thinking about that.
3: Uh, Larry, perhaps the story that overshadowed the entire week, not necessarily in economics or finance, but overall was the passing of Queen Elizabeth II the, the at the age of 96. Uh, and I wonder if that gives us an occasion to reflect on what has happened to the British economy since 1952 when she became queen into the present time. It's been through an awful lot. It's grown a fair amount at the same time, and what we think is likely in store for King Charles II.
5: You know, in today's world, there are very few leaders who command nearly universal respect. And there are very few leaders who are able, through decades in the public eye, to maintain um, that dignity and to maintain respect. and. Queen Elizabeth did that and did it as recently as this year at the age of 96. And it's a quite extraordinary uh, thing that I think history will uh, long remember. She stood for taking the long view. She stood for rising above passions of uh, the moment, and I think those are useful lessons for all of us involved in political economy, useful lessons when the urge to point scoring or cheap partisan advantage um, looms large in politics and useful lessons in, with respect to uh, economics and economic policy as well. And one has to uh, take a, a longer view. And so Queen Elizabeth was always acting not with a view to the newspaper headlines, but with a view to the history books. And my counsel to Uh, those who will lead Britain politically at this very difficult moment is to do the same thing and I think that's something we can all uh, usefully keep in mind in every country Uh,
3: so Larry let's convene the Larry Summers book club here Uh, what are you reading these days I understand you have a book you like a lot
5: Brad DeLong my uh, former student, now a colleague at the Treasury Department, now a professor at uh, Berkeley, has written the one economic history book that I think everybody should uh, take a very serious look at, Uh, Slouching Towards Utopia, is the title, and it chronicles the world from the moment uh, growth really took off in 1870, pretty much up to the present. The only thing we really can learn from, for thinking about the future economy is history, and Brad tells it in a dramatic and strongly thematic uh, way.
3: Thank you so much, Larry. I really appreciate you being back with us. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Everything that goes up must come down, or to put it in financial terms, reverts to the mean. We've seen it recently in things like Bitcoin coming back down toward Earth.
6: The weight that we've seen on Bitcoin and
3: the
5: crypto space at large. Downward momentum from a longer term perspective is very bearish right now.
3: In meme stocks shooting up and shooting right back down again. So-called meme
4: stocks like GameStop down 8%, AMC Entertainment also down.
3: And in those NFTs that were going to take us all into the bold new world of the metaverse.
0: The NFT market
3: has crashed. The gloss has come off of that particular world And now we're seeing it in the world of SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies that held out the promise of all the benefits of going public without all those pesky SEC requirements.
6: The SPAC market in particular not doing well.
3: The SPAC craze is over. I think that uh, investor sentiment has soured on the product. This week we saw the latest stumble of a SPAC when the company former President Trump chose to help him take his truth social media company public ran into trouble with shareholders who refused to let it extend the time to close the deal as the app itself continues to have issues including a ban from the google play store
6: truth social that content moderation piece and making sure that they can kind of abide by the standards that google expects seems to be the breaking
2: point at the moment
3: which brings us to baseball and to the new york yankees the best team in baseball at least through the month of june winning almost 75 percent of their games during that time period only to revert to that mean with a record well below 500 since then but in a world of things coming back down to earth there is one part of the Yankees that hasn't He's named Aaron Judge, who has already hit well over 50 home runs this season and is on a pace that, with a little luck and a bit of his skill, could approach or even pass Roger Maris' record of 61.
6: I'm just blessed to be in this position and be with those guys and looking forward to setting more records with those guys and hopefully eventually getting the ring at the end
4: of the year.
3: As big a deal as that is for the sport of baseball, it may be even a bigger deal for Judge's bank account. He was offered $213.5 million in a contract extension at the beginning of the year, only to turn it down and bet on himself and decide he was going to have a new contract at the end of the year. Well, that bet, it looks like it's likely to pay off. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.